The following broadcast was produced by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco as part of our Lighthouse Learning Library. We're here with Bill Barker, who's been one of the more prolific volunteers at the Lighthouse over many years. And we know many of Bill's accomplishments, most recently some of the most prolific production of podcasts. And Bill, how many podcasts have you done for us? Well, the series has been on since... 1987, and the podcast itself is going on its, I want to say, third year. Uh, It might be second year. (laughs) You lose track after a while. The series itself started in April 1987. Okay. Well, I want this this, uh, interview today is just to get to know you a little bit better. And for that, I want to start way, way, way back. And uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, uh, a little bit about your early blindness journey, where did you learn your blindness skills, and um, some of some of the things you did in the first part of your life. Well, I had uh, excellent teachers, as most of us did at the California School for the Blind in Berkeley. And uh, I uh, have been blessed all of my life, or just about all my life, with partial vision, so I do see some uh, out of one eye, partially out of one eye. And uh, I had the good fortune of not only learning Braille well, but also Braille music, which I have used over the years. And uh, I went to public high school, went to University of Pacific or College of Pacific in Stockton. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, began work with the lighthouse in the summer of 1962 at Enchanted Hills as a counselor. I had been a camper there before in the uh, middleish 1950s and skipped a couple of years and then came back as a counselor in uh, camp counselor in uh, 1962 and stayed with that through the 60s and early 70s. And uh, I've had the pleasure of wearing various hats at the Lighthouse. Uh, Also worked for the industries for a while Mm -hmm. in the 70s. What did you do there? Howard Street. Well, I was involved with the broom and um, bucket brigade upstairs, uh, both both areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, then at the same time... uh, was a part-time paid staff at the Buchanan Street Center in the 70s, and I, again, had the good fortune of uh, passing a a test for a Braille and music instructor with the then Community College, and um, started uh, substitute work as early as 1971 with that. So the jobs overlapped a little bit, and um, that is the Buchanan Street and the Howard Street jobs and the community college. So um, uh, we were pretty pretty busy in, the, in that period of time. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is a good time to go and get a little deeper into some of these details because you've covered some rich area here. At the California School for the Blind, did you ever cross paths with Newell Perry? No. So he had already stepped down and... Yes, uh, his 
successors were there, and they were greatly influenced by his uh, good work. People like Bob Campbell and George Fogarty, in particular. Uh, we certainly heard a lot about Newell Perry in those those times, in the fifties, uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who weren't there at the time. The School for the Blind in those days was kind of a legendary place. It's a lot different than it is now. What made it a special place? What What about the expectations and the quality and the caliber of, of folks and the community made it a special place? Well, the community was, was most definitely involved with the school, with uh, everything from Boy Scout and Girl Scouting to, uh, uh, I guess the girls had Campfire Girls, but anyway, it was the same idea. Um, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, um, adaptive uh, sports, uh, lots of music, uh, and uh, I would say that shopkeepers were definitely uh, in tune with the way the uh, blind and uh, partially sighted community operated. Uh, very familiar. What do you mean by shopkeepers? Well, the people who own stores. Mm-hmm. Everything from small pharmacies to, well, you name it. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned that you'd started going camping at Enchanted Hills Camp, probably directly with Rose Resnick in the mid-1950s. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what those sessions were like. What did you do? What were some of the favorite things you liked to do there? Well, as I have stated before, I think uh, Rose, uh, particularly Rose, emphasized uh, in the play part of it a level playing field for uh, the participants. Um, and uh, that instilled upon us. And again, she was very big on, uh, on the music part of it and uh, some camp traditions. And... Um, her sidekick, Nina Brandt, was a military person, so in some respects the camp was a little mil- militaristic in those days, but we seemed to be able to live through it with cabin inspections and uh, flag raising and lowering, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, no, no big deal. It was probably uh, instilled a little patriotism in us one way or the other. and. Uh, we had our variety of everything from campfires to dances to uh, just a variety of of uh, activity, both day and evening. Um, the counselors' makeup, I I don't believe, has, has changed that much over the 50-plus years. And most of the counselors are uh, young college uh, students and still are and uh, good summer work for them. And, uh, and well, that, that's, in a nutshell, that's pretty much it. How long was a typical session in the 1950s? Well, that's a good question. They were two-week sessions, and usually, not always, but usually Thursday to the two weeks later Thursday, usually. Mm-hmm. And what did you learn there that you didn't have anywhere else? What what kind of personal growth or what kind of what kind of skills or what kind of just just development did you learn particularly at Enchanted Hills? 
Well, uh, I have to admit that at the uh, blind school, because of the location of my family, I was a day student, so I uh, probably didn't learn how to kick clothes straight until I got to Enchanted Hills, and uh, at that you learn in a hurry mm -hmm. uh, at, at, at camp. And uh, uh, also learned, um, or enhanced, I should say, the idea of uh, using um, what vision I am blessed with, try to do it well, and maybe once in a while help others. Uh, uh, certainly that was true at the school, but more so even at, at, at camp. Uh, they always had guide ropes, but uh, still, it's a, it's a big area, and uh, folks can get uh, wandering sometimes, as we all do. Mm -hmm. So uh, that uh, uh, enhanced that, as I say. Mm -hmm. So you were, you said uh, you became a counselor in 1962. I understand that in the early days there were no blind counselors. Were you the first blind counselor at Enchanted Hills? I was one of the first. I don't think I was the first, but I was one of the first. Um, our director, the late uh, Lynn Brooks, uh, himself was was blind, uh, and uh, I think he had a little bit of vision, but blind per se. And he made it a point to hire uh, blind counselors. And I, I can't speak for, because I was a camper, I can't speak for Rose's day on that because I, I don't know that her never knew her policy about that, so no no comment one way or the other. What were your responsibilities as a counselor starting back in 62? Uh, we had a, a cabin, uh, well, we worked uh, with the uh, young children and, and teenagers, and uh, uh, one would uh, expect the responsibility of, uh, of the well-being of the campers and uh, uh, things were a little cruder then but uh, certainly livable and um, I, I would say that there's not that much of a difference between uh, what a fully sighted counselor needs to do and what a uh, counselor with uh, vision loss needs to do. I mean you might get help once in a while but uh, Nonetheless, uh, the responsibility is there, and you're you're hired to do these things, and uh, and first and foremost, making sure that the well-being is uh, is there for the uh, camping participant. So, Bill, you're one of those few people who can have a perspective that goes back just about 60 years on Enchanted Hills, and many of us in the community knew Rose Resnick later. She lived a long time. But if you can think back to the 1950s when you were a camper and this was her new baby, the, the new camp and all that, what was she like to be around? What was, what was, um, what was it like to, to learn from a very, very energetic blind person? What did energetic you take Energetic is <laughs> a very good word to use. It, 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 if anything, that's understated because Rose was energetic. Um, diverting for just a moment, I remember one time when I was 
working on a series at, at KLWFM in San Francisco. She was going to be uh, my guest for, which she was, for a program I was doing. Oddly enough, she had been a uh, guest on some morning show. Then she came to me, and she had her own series on another station and was still going strong at 11 o'clock that same night. And that's really saying something. I mean, this is years later. But what's, to answer your question, um, for most of us, I guess, uh, uh, we thought she was a very pleasant person. Energetic, yes. Um, you had the advantage if you enjoyed singing and music and that sort of thing. You had the advantage of uh, really enjoying it. And not everybody did, uh, especially among some of the younger fellows that thought that it was a waste of time <laughs> singing after each meal and so on and so forth. But many of us did enjoy it. And um, Rose was a wonderful musician too, by the way. She uh, just played piano beautifully. Um, she, I think, thinking back, she she knew what was happening at, at camp with her staff and how they handled things. I, I, I really believe that. Uh, and um, even when I was at the Rose Resnick Center, I didn't really work for her. I, at that time, I was working exclusively for community college. So I can't, again, cannot comment on actually working for her. But um, I know she could, uh, on occasion, be hard on her workers, uh, saw that. But that's human nature, I guess. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Nina was a bit militaristic, but uh, mm -hmm. one could live with that. And uh, Rose knew everybody's name. You, you gotta, you gotta give credit where credit is due. Uh, and you know, you get 50, 60 campers there, and she seemed to, she seemed to know everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and and had her finger. Uh, uh, had her finger in the pot, you know, you might say, throughout the, the whole time, and uh, catered to whatever age uh, you were in at that at that point in time in your life. Because they had adults, too, uh, during her time. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't work an adult session. I think my first adult summer, uh, as I recall, was, um, I, I, I believe... It was 19, um, let's see, did I work 62? I don't think so. I think I worked 63 was my first adult session. And anyway, it was uh, a lot different from the youngsters, very less rigid, and adults had, frankly, more choices uh, uh, for activities to go to or just do nothing if that's what they preferred, and which was fine in, in that time. And um, again, I, I don't know whether, whether Rose had that format or not. Mm -hmm. Well, you've seen Camp go through a variety of incarnations with many different directors over time. Could you uh, give us the broad sweep? How has it changed over time and uh, bring it up till today? Well, uh, of course, there was a uh, little bit of a... Uh, Backlash uh, when Rose and Nina had both left. Uh, 
Lynn Brooks tried, and I think he, in ways he did a very good job, especially with the adults. Uh, he, with the kids, almost was anti-music, but um, not quite, but, but leaning that way. Um, what was the backlash against? Well, just, um, um, again, it was uh, so much... Uh, so much music. He wanted camp activities to reflect outdoorsy camping type uh, type things. Uh, it wasn't against drama and music and that sort of thing, but it, it definitely uh, uh, wanted um, uh, an outdoor uh, feeling. And then we had uh, uh, a little tumult in '64 with a. Uh, director that just wasn't wasn't quite suited for camp, and uh, there was a change in midsummer where the San Francisco Lighthouse staff actually ended up taking over. In '65, uh, Lynn Brooks returned, and uh, then in the uh, late '60s, early '70s, the uh, Wes Ritchie was the overall director at the uh, lighthouse both for industries and anything else the Lighthouse was doing. Um, his wife became camp director and eventually their son-in-law, uh, Norman Landrieu, became camp director. Uh, their, their only hang-up was that um, they, uh, in my opinion, were, were um, too um, Christian-oriented, which is, which is fine as far as their own personal beliefs are concerned. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> uh, we had always emphasized, like at chapel services at camp, a universal, loving God and nature and that, and that sort of thing. Not, not so much um, from a uh, strict biblical viewpoint. And apart from the Christian influence, were the programs much different? Was music still diminished? Was there a- No, no, it wasn't diminished, no, no. They, matter of fact, the riches added um, innovations to camp. That's when uh, things like the bowling alley and the uh, uh, basketball court was changed and uh, roller rink and uh, the pool was uh, upgraded. Those would be late 60s or early 70s? Yes, uh, along in there. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they, they added a lot of innovations and, and good ones. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to O.J. May? Well, I, I didn't work long for O.J. I think only one full summer and then an adult session or two along the way. Uh, God rest her soul. We had uh, um, a little difference of opinion. Um, she, uh, toward the end of summer, <clears throat> in, in, in my opinion, uh, uh, got a little lax with uh, some of the concert being on time to activities. And I'm one that I say, you know, if, if you're up there to work, you try to be as much on time as possible so you can get things rolling along, whether you're directing it or assisting, either way. And um, there are times when you just can't, uh, things happen. But um, more often than not, uh, sometimes we got holding the bag and, and uh, uh, 
didn't get the support and help that uh, uh, one would like to have an activity go absolutely smoothly. But uh, that's somewhat minor, but it's still, to me, it was a, a major, uh, major difference. But I think, in all in all, she also was a very good director. And bringing it up to the present day, you've had some chance to visit Enchanted Hills as it is now. Oh, I think it's great. How is how is it great, particularly now? Well, I think uh, Tony is very much in tune with, uh, again, uh, with different age groups, different interests. Um, he's fair with his counselors, for the most part. Um, again, he knows every camper, uh, knows the whims and so forth and so on, and uh, is quite interested in... Uh, the well-being of the participants, and I think he's done some good things over the 10-plus years that he's been there. There were other directors, too, that did fine, uh, both the Duncans and Jim Carrion and uh, even John Paul for a year. So, And if you were king and could change, add, um, modify how the operations are at Enchanted Hills. What would you do to change it to make it even better now? Right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, make the sessions longer, particularly for adults. Um, it, it's amazing what they can get in in four or five days. It, it, it really is. Um, uh, but I would make them longer. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily cheaper, because that's being unrealistic, but... Uh, I make them longer. It takes it sometimes a day or two to, at least a day anyway, to get acclimated and unwound and find out what you would like to do. And there are things that you want to do that maybe you don't get around to doing in, in a, just the four or five days that you're there. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but... Um, I think all in all, though, I mean, it's amazing what they can do in four or five days. And uh, that's even for many of them taking a trip to the wineries and the writing program that they have up there. And uh, uh, it, it's well done, but I think it needs to be longer. Any other additions to it? What other programs or activities would you like to see in it? Mm, I can't think of anything really off offhand. Uh, and thinking back over the uh, 60 years, uh, oh, you thought of something. Well, I, I just, um, I invented this, this basketball uh, business um, in the uh, 1963, the way they handle basketball. Now, I happen to believe that, uh, again, a level playing field, and um, uh, I believe in letting the, pretty much the captains choose their, their teams, except that when I did it, when I was leading it, I would prefer that um, if you have one, say, partially sighted person on a team, you have to have another partially sighted person on the opposite team, to, to be absolutely fair. Um, I think the way they're doing it now, I believe, I didn't play this year, I was busy with other things, um, I think the way they're doing it now is everybody's blindfolded, and that uh, you're you're putting the partially sighted and certainly the fully sighted 
at, at, a, at a big disadvantage because, you know, they're not used to hearing the tapping sound or however you're doing it. And um, um, no matter what you say, you, uh, people want to do well at, at, at a given activity. And uh, I think the way we did it was, was right. That, that's all I'll say about that. Okay. I was just going to ask you a lighthearted question. In those 60 years that you've been in and around camp, what's the most trouble you got into there? <laughs> that is held up to me all the time. Uh, 1958, warm night, uh, Napa night, let's say, where the temperature is not going to cool down. It's Death Valley all the way. And uh, we uh, older teenagers were talking, 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 and frankly keeping the younger ones awake, which was not very good. So we decided to um, hike up to the lake and go boating at 4 o'clock in the morning. Okay. So we do that, and uh, that was fine. Then we got tired of that and got out and put the boats away safely and got ourselves back on the pier safely. And um, there was three of us. And um, then uh, uh, two of us were at odds as to what to do next. One guy didn't care. So he chose a number between one and 10, the other guy won. Uh, I was for hiking, because I knew my way around the property in those days. Um, and my night vision was fairly good, and the moon was out, and you know, all the right, all the right uh, environment. Mm -hmm. I would not have gotten lost. But the other guy wanted to go swimming. So swimming won, and so we marched down to the pool, and uh, I naively said, um, fellas, how are we going to find our trunks at this hour in the, in the morning? And <laughs> the guys both said, man, who needs trunks? So I figured, well, I guess they're right. So we jump in, and I had done a lap underwater, and I come up and see a light, a flashlight. I knew we were in double trouble, which we were. So we got dressed and got marched down to the cabins, and after breakfast, we were called to the back table, particularly by Nina. Mm -hmm. And uh, they uh, threatened right then and there to throw us out of camp. Um, I was concerned because my folks were away on vacation and I didn't have a house key and, um, uh, uh, or at least I don't think I did. Anyway, um, she uh, gave us five minutes to present a case as to why we shouldn't be thrown out. Well, two of us, the guy who didn't care what we did next and myself had good records at camp. Mm -hmm. So we went on that. And uh, the third guy says, well, what about me? And they said, well, what about you? You know, you're in trouble all the time. <laughs> but uh, since she let two of us stay, she let three of us stay. That should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. On the very last morning, we decide, again, I think it was the three of us, um, that we were going to march down to the girls' area, which was a real no-no in those days. And... Um, help the L.A. ladies with their suitcases up to the area where they would be picked up and then eventually hauled off to the airport. And so we did that. 
and here comes Nina. <laughs> and it took her about a nanosecond to figure out what we had done. And uh, she very simply stated that after breakfast, we would help all the young boys up with their luggage and suitcases, sleeping bags, and so forth and so on. And she would stand watch. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was the big trouble we were in. Uh, uh, my father, God rest his soul, got a big kick out of that. <laughs> uh, so what's the importance in having a camp for the blind in 2013? It's changed. Maybe it hasn't changed. Why should we have this as a lighthouse for the next 63 years? Well, I, I think it's important, particularly in... Uh, Particularly in adaptive sports, I, I, I think you need uh, you need the possibility to have participants excel, and it's much harder in say playing regular baseball or regular basketball or regular this or regular that uh, if you're mixing it in with fully sighted folks, most of whom are going to be faster and abler. Uh, and in other fields too, even even in uh, even in music, give give uh, those talent shows give uh, give uh, participants their moment in the sun per se. Now, the same could be said of sighted there, but but uh, especially I think in in the camping and the sports and the, uh, some of the uh, swimming and some of the outdoor activities, I was telling uh, Hope. This year, she's the kind of the sort of the camp historian. Yes. Um, I told her she was lucky she didn't have any brothers. She said, well, why? I said, well, you probably your dad wouldn't have let you handle the horses or any other activity for the boys if, if there'd been boys around. And, and this way you got, to, you got to do what you love. She said, well, I really never thought about that. And I said, well... Um, I think you're, you know, you may have missed having siblings, but you you were lucky in 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 that regard, especially not having brothers. And I see the analogy with the blind. We get our hands on it. We get to do it ourselves. Yeah. Now, at the time you first got to camp in the fifties, um, it was not, as I understand it, common for students to use white canes. And pictures of the camp in the 50s show lots of campers and no canes. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. When did that change? I, I would say it, it, it probably in the uh, very late 50s or, or early 60s it began to, to uh, change, and particularly with adults. Uh, I mean, the adults at the time. Uh, so I'd love to switch gears just a little bit and talk about something you did mostly after camp, which was start working in what the lighthouse operated, blind craft, the factory, the production of brooms and mops and that kind of thing. For people who are young now, they look at those times and through the filter of our own age, that may look like a dark age. They may think about segregation or um, that kind of thing. But what was it like at the time for you? 
Was that a reasonable path? Talk about that history. Well, I had always had a desire to, to, to work, but I had a desire to work temporarily and then move on, uh, which actually didn't, it didn't happen that way, which is all right. Um, I'll never forget uh, Bob Miller, who himself is uh, deaf, but can speak. He uh, came up to me one day, and I was at one of the machines, and he said, uh, he said, I thought you were all going to stay three weeks, and here it's been a year and a half. <laughs> and I said, well, I think I told him I liked it here or something. I don't know. He seemed satisfied. Um, I, I, I think it, it primarily gave a, a, a tremendous, even though the work was, was pretty hard, it, it gave it a, a tremendous amount of dignity to the uh, workers. I mean, even those who uh, at the beginning weren't necessarily making minimum wage even, but it, it uh, they, they could tell you their, their history and so on and so forth. And uh, it was, uh, I think the dignity aspect played a big role <clears throat> in uh, the perseverance of the uh, continuance of work, and of course, wanting to to do put out a good product too, of course. But uh, paint us a picture, if you would. How many folks were working there? What exactly did you do? Mm. Um, how hard was it? How much did you get paid? Well, by the time I came along, it was it wasn't piecework anymore. It was a a low minimum wage. Uh, I don't exactly remember the exact figure, but it was, uh, I had, fortunately I was moonlighting too, so I, I had other, a little bit of other income. And uh, um, as for how many folks, uh, uh, counting upstairs and downstairs and what have you, it's 20 something. Um, and that's support staff and the, the whole, you know, the whole ball of wax. Uh, Men and women? Pardon? Men and women? Yes. Yes, men and women. Men and women. Uh, mostly men, but there were, there were hard-working women. I can think of three or four offhand. Very, very hard-working. So tell us, what were the actual tasks? What things did you do with your hands, and what were the products that resulted? Well, in the broom factory, there was all sizes of, of brooms. You had the scrapers, and you had the... Uh, the broom makers. I didn't make brooms. I, I did work some of the other machines, um, um, both uh, by hand and then by by machine. Um, uh, upstairs, you had uh, the uh, woodcutters working a, a regular gig, um, wood gig, jig, I guess you call it. Um, so they made both uh, pots for nurseries and wine racks. And uh, as I had mentioned, I had done both downstairs and upstairs. And uh, upstairs work varied everything from uh, making sure that the bands were absolutely clean on those buckets to, to uh, uh, some folks were putting buckets together and, and constructing them. So uh, that in essence is the, was the gist of it. And you're a bright guy. So you went to University of the Pacific, I think you said? Yes. 
and you graduated. I did. And help us understand what it was like to be a college-educated, bright, blind guy and, and doing this kind of direct blue-collar work when you had so much intellectual ability, too. Well, it was just circumstances, and I, I accepted it, and, and I, I don't regret it, uh, put it that way. Uh, I uh, don't recall that I, I hope I didn't. I don't think I lorded it over anybody and you know, just accepted uh, the circumstance at the, at the time that it, it came up. I needed, I needed uh, main work, mm -hmm. and uh, I was willing to get a little dusty and dirty and so forth. Most of the people who work there live in San Francisco, commute from the East Bay, live together, live with their families. All of the above. Mm -hmm. Do you think they, there's still a role for uh, direct industrial uh, work of this kind in the 21st century economy? Yes, I do. I do indeed. So tell us a little bit uh, about what happened you, afterwards. You, you look at uh, somebody like, uh, if I may be a name dropper, you look at Byron Albertson, mm -hmm. who, who's been with it for easily 60 years. And we started out at camp together, as a matter of fact. Is that right? Yeah. So Byron's, Byron's a very hard worker. So I, you mean after, after, well, I came to the uh, Buchanan Street Center and worked both for Community College and the Center uh, Lighthouse for uh, several years in the 80s, the early 80s. What did you do at Buchanan Street? Uh, primarily Braille, music, um, general, uh, general staff, uh, everything from trying to assist to serve lunches to occasionally running the front desk to, you know, all the perks that one would, but primarily Braille and music. And somewhere along the line, you started using that fine voice of yours to broadcast and to record and later well, that, to podcast. Well, that, that's overlapped. I mean, I, I did that from, from, uh, the 60s <clears throat> through the 70s at various and sundry stations, uh, small markets, uh, both in the San Joaquin Valley and, and here in the city, here in the city on stations that, that uh, are not the most popular stations in the world, but well, they have listeners, KEST and KLW in San Francisco, and a little then daytime station, KWUN in Concord. California. Uh, so, uh, as I said, I, I always had uh, other things going, even when I was in uh, working at Blindcraft. For our uh, job seekers now, who may be a little intimidated, asking somebody for a job, finding a position, tell us about the process of how did you, you know, radio was in demand then, it's in demand now. How did you find the gumption? to go to a station manager and say, hire me to be an on-air radio personality. Well, to tell you the truth, uh, on most of the occasions, I, I, I bought my way on by, by having a, a sponsor that could pay for the airtime. So sometimes I wasn't making any money at all. Sometimes I was making a little, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it, it does take a little gumption. Uh, and I don't know whether I have it anymore or not. I, I, I really don't. But you talked your way in. I talked my way in, yeah. And tell us what, what kinds of shows you would have. Well, I did everything from children's specials 
two uh, featuring, uh, we had a summer worth of Lighthouse talent, to um, just featuring old time radio tapes, transcriptions. Uh, uh, in the 70s, I did a, did a little Baroque and Renaissance program in familiar classics called uh, the Coffee Cantata, the name based on a Bach cantata, Coffee Cantata. Although I didn't use the Coffee Cantata theme, I used Handel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Handel plagiarized himself a lot, as many composers did. Um, but the, the theme was just right at, the, at that time. Um, and just technically, you would would you put the needle on the record? Would you set the levels? Would you do those things? Sometimes, but usually I had an engineer. Mm -hmm. Usually, which is what I frankly prefer. I, I I can run a board, but I would much prefer to have an engineer. I'm I'm just better sounding. Did you face much skepticism about people seeing a blind guy, maybe the first blind guy they ever met, sitting being their on-air personality? Uh, no, not 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 too much. Uh, I did have one uh, peculiar incident in the uh, very early '70s in the Valley. Um, um, I had been in conversation with uh, the manager of a small radio station in Lodi, which is near Stockton. Well, I guess you know where that is. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, they were uh, the FM was fairly new in those days, and uh, I was going to do a which I did a Fourth of July special, and uh, I, I made it a point to say. Well, if you know, need be, I can run the board. I prefer to have a board operator, but I can run it if need be. But I will need someone to take the meter readings. Uh, after all, I'm partially sighted. Well, the manager didn't know what the term meant. He says, well, I don't want to take anybody who's partially sighted. He said, well, what did you serve time for in jail? <laughs> I said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, we got that straightened out. Um, then on the uh, on the night of the show, everything was going along pretty good. I did have an engineer, it turned out, and uh, playing a lot of uh, not only patriotic stuff, but a lot of 78s, 78 RPM mm -hmm. uh, records. And things were going along pretty good, <laughs> and the manager calls up and says, how are you going to handle the re request time? I said, request time? He said, yeah, we do requests every night from 10 to 11. And, and <laughs> I said, well, this is a special. I said, I, I, can't, I probably don't have the material. Uh, so anyway, that was that. <laughs> so what makes you keep coming back? So many recordings, hostings, now in the 21st century, many podcasts, dramatic readings, interesting well, the, stories. Well, the, the reading program itself, dates, as I said, dates back to 1987. It was a weekly thing at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I think it was a statement that said, I would rather read it myself than have someone else read it to me. It was really what, what kept me coming on this series. And it's probably still true. Uh, and, uh, of course our, 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 listenership, I, you know, realistically looking at it, I'm, I'm sure must be down from what it was at one point in time when we were on the SAP channels, but then I don't know for sure. 
I don't know who we reach uh, via the internet and via Twitter. We might reach more than I think. I have to think in those terms. Mm -hmm. And and my my uh, view has always been whether it's for internet or whether it's for regular radio or commercial radio or public radio. Uh, my view has always been and still is. Would my mother want to hear this program? <laughs> So, Bill, as you look forward to the next generation of blind kids coming up at camp, blind job seekers, university students, what do you want for them? What do you want them to do or be or feel that you didn't have the chance to do? Well, that's a good question. Um, I wouldn't say that it's so much of a chance, but I'd like them to be able to uh, develop good skills, be it physical or in, in writing or some uh, something they can really uh, get into fairly quickly and uh, do it meaningfully and uh, uh, again um, stressing uh, quality. Mm -hmm. Well you've had a chance even recently to observe blind and newly blind people through the California Orientation Center for the Blind. You taught Braille there for many years. Are we going in the right direction in the training and in the expectations of, of the blind coming up? What's your observation? Well, <clears throat> here again, uh, my own view probably is a little askew of what the Orientation Center um, once, and that's not the reason that I'm not there, but uh, uh, I, I've always felt that if you have partial vision, if you're blessed with partial vision, you should use as much of it as you can effectively and know the difference between what you can use and what you can't use and what you can't use and then adapt. Um, they uh, tend to... Um, again, blindfold everyone, which is okay for, for uh, to a point, but I, I, I think uh, it's uh, a bit overdone and uh, among the partially sighted. And uh, um, I, again, would like to, in other words, uh, I find no problem using, using Braille and using what vision you've got. There are not many people with some vision who are as adept at Braille as you are. Perhaps not. I, I don't know. We know just a few. The, every, every force in the educational community often gets people towards the visual solutions. But you're a um, remarkable Braille reader. How did you decide and focus on your Braille s speed, all Ooh. the while champi championing the full use of your um, sight that you do have? Well, I, I always wanted to do some, some type of uh, radio, particularly radio, presentation of, of some sort. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be ad-libbing, so too much. Some, yes, but basically uh, you're reading. And I pride myself on, on rhythm, and I, I don't read as fast as a print reader. And I think you have to. I think you have to admit that. I think you have to pace yourself so that uh, you're sounding convincing and uh, 
hopefully happy where we're appropriate and um, at least enthusiastic and um, but but the rhythm makes all the difference makes all the difference in the world okay well Bill Barker it's been a wonderful hour getting a chance to talk about things back in your youth middle age and now a little bit of reflection about the future Lighthouse and I really appreciate all that you have done here in many ways, public and private, to help people, to add some joy, to add some music, both musically and literarily. And I just want to thank you for so many years of service and look forward to your next podcast and your next inspiration. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you, Bill. The preceding material is owned and distributed by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, California. To obtain permission to use this content for classes or other uses, please contact us at publications at lighthouse-sf.org. Or to learn more about the Lighthouse, visit our website at www.lighthouse-sf.org. The CEO and two workers go out to lunch. They're at a city beach. They in the sand, they rub a lamp, and sure enough, a genie comes out, says, I'll grant each of you one wish. One worker wants to go to Fiji for lunch, pristine beaches. The other one wants to go to Tahiti. They both go. Says the CEO, what is your wish? He says, I want both those guys back right after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Okay, Nicely done. done. <laughs>